well to follow along in your Bibles, and also if you need a, a sheet to follow along with you, uh, there was one in the bulletin. Looks like that. Anyone need one of those? Just raise your hand and get one of those for you. We will be in Romans chapter 3 this morning. Romans chapter 3. Paul's point in the first three chapters is to prove that the gospel is for everyone that believes in Jesus. Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 makes that clear. However, it's all too easy for us to think, whether we are religious or not, that we don't need the gospel. We don't need the gospel. And so Paul shows us that the Gentiles are under sin in chapter 1, and therefore they are under the wrath of God. They have clearly seen that God exists and that He will judge, and yet they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And therefore, God says, they are without excuse. They will not be able to stand before God on the judgment say, judgment day and say, you know, I didn't know or I, I, I didn't have any way to come to you. God's going to say, you had what I gave you. You knew that I existed and yet you still defied me. You did what your heart wanted to do. God had made it clear through natural revelation and through chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, through writing it on their hearts. And so therefore they are without excuse. But the Jews, or we can say the religious people, are no better off, are they? Those who are religious cannot claim an exemption before the throne of God because, you know, we had known the law. We knew the law, God, and so you can't judge us. God will not accept simply a knowledge of the law or, in the Jews' case, circumcision as a ground for, uh, as a ground for salvation from His fierce wrath. In other words, we learned in chapter 2 that privilege does not guarantee safety. Privilege does not guarantee safety from God's wrath because that privilege, right, just like we can grow up in a Christian environment, that privilege can be squandered. And as a result, that privilege will not only condemn us to eternal hell, but it will condemn us to a greater punishment than if we hadn't had that privilege at all. And so the question for us is, what will we do with the privileges that God has given to us? And the Jews had to see from this writing that, that they were under the same predicament as the Gentiles, condemned before God without excuse because they were all under sin and far from God apart from His grace. And here, at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul anticipates several objections and then answers them. Now, the difficulty with this passage is that that this passage is made up of questions, primarily. There are only two verses without a question, verse 2 and verse 4. And in fact, out of the 18 total sentences in verses 1 through 8, 11 of them are questions. And so, we don't often talk this way, just in questions. It's difficult to do that and to make sense of it for a long period of time. And therefore, it's hard to determine what Paul is getting at, but I'm going to, to, to give a shot at, at trying to help you to understand this with me. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. I'll begin reading, and you follow along in your Bible. 
This is the Word of God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is He? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to His glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Paul, I think in this passage, is trying to show us, see at the top of your handout, that God's character and glory are not marred in His judgment of religious people. Now, when I say religious, I hope you recognize that people who have these great privileges but squander them. Not all religious people are in this category of being judged by God. But, but those who are religious and, and squander those privileges. See, here in, in verses 1-8, through 8, Paul gives five potential objections to his teaching from chapter 2. Right in chapter 2, he was saying, you are all under sin, just like the Gentiles. You're all under my wrath, God was saying. And so, if that's the case, then there would be some potential objections from Paul's readers, and Paul anticipates what those objections are. That's what you see here, these five objections. He anticipates those objections and then responds to each one of them. So let's look at these, uh, beginning with the first one in verses 1 and 2. The first potential objection that Paul anticipates is that his teaching denies all advantages advantages of the Jews. Paul, if you're saying that we, Jews, are on the same level, or in some cases a worse, a lower level than the Gentiles, then what possible advantage is there to being a Jew? There appears to be no advantage. I mean, if the Jews are like the Gentiles, and that both of them are without excuse, and are under sin and under God's wrath, then what's so beneficial about being a Jew at all? Look back at chapter 2, verse 28. Chapter 2, verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Notice what Paul's saying here. A Gentile, right? A pagan, what they would call a dog. A Gentile, a non-Jew, can achieve a higher status than an unbelieving Jew. So a person could be an ethnic Jew, live their lives with all that great privilege, and squander that privilege, and actually be in a worse position than a Gentile who didn't have all that privilege. Why? Because it's not about the covenant this covenant of circumcision that they saw as so important, it was about circumcision of the heart. It was about a relationship with God. So a Gentile could have a higher status than an unbelieving Jew, and a Gentile could have the same status as a believing Jew. 
right? A believing Jew is, is accepted before God. And a Gentile could be also accepted before God. And so the question that naturally comes up after Paul makes that kind of claim is, well, what advantage then is there to being a Jew at all? If a Gentile can actually go above an unbelieving Jew and come to the same plane as a believing Jew. And further, it appears that circumcision has no advantage either. The Jews thought that this was their irrevocable stamp of approval of God's blessing. That because they had this stamp of approval from God, God could not deny them. But Paul wants us to be clear that outward circumcision really has no value. It's all about circumcision of the heart. It's being set apart for God's purposes in the heart. And so Paul responds to his own objection, potential objection, that could come up in verse 2. And he says there is a great advantage. Notice what he says there. Great in every respect. What is the benefit? It's great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. He says, first of all, there are several more advantages to being a Jew other than what he mentions right here. And if you look at chapter 9, verses 4 and 5 later on your own, you can see that a, a list of those advantages. Chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. I didn't put that in your handout, but chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, the other advantages to being a Jew. But here is the first one. Here's the primary one. And it is that they, the Jews, were entrusted with the very oracles of God. This was the privilege that God had given to them. They were supposed to be stewards of it. Think about it like a manager entrusting, or I should say an owner entrusting something to a manager. He's saying, here, this is yours. Now use it for, for my advantage, for my benefit. God's saying, that's what I did with you Jews. I, the owner of the very oracles that come from my mouth, the Scriptures themselves, I, I handed them to you. And I said, here, you manage them. Use them for your benefit and for mine. So here's the reality. There is no advantage of being a Jew over being a Gentile when it comes to exemption from judgment from sins. But that doesn't mean there's no advantage to being a Jew at all. It's just like today. We might say it this way. So you're telling me there's no advantage to growing up in a Christian home and going to a Christian school, going to a God-honoring church, or going to a Christian homeschool, there's no advantage to any of those things? And how would I respond? I would say, of course there's an advantage. That type of upbringing is not, however, going to exempt you from condemnation. It's not going to guarantee your safety. Do you see? Privilege doesn't guarantee safety. It is a great advantage though, isn't it? To have all those things. Being religious, that is growing up in a religious, God-honoring home, is an advantage. But the, the question is, how are you going to use what's been entrusted to you? God effectively entrusted to you in that kind of upbringing the very words of Himself by giving you godly parents and a godly school and a godly church to be a part of. And now your responsibility is to do something with that. In other words, God enter into a relationship with the Jews by speaking to them, the oracles of God. And that is a great advantage. So he, he responds to the first one by saying there is a great advantage to being a Jew. 
The second potential objection that Paul anticipates is that his teaching denies God's faithfulness. Verses 3 and 4. Paul's teaching denies God's faithfulness. It seems that God is responding to the unfaithfulness of the Jews with His own unfaithfulness. See, in the Jews' mind, their unfaithfulness would never move God. In other words, they saw their ethnicity, their Jewishness, as a trump card. It didn't matter how they lived. They had this membership card, right? That would give them a free pass to God's mercy. Why? Because the Jews were God's covenant people. He had to bless them. But look at how Paul thinks of that kind of reasoning. Look at verse 3 and then into the first part of verse 4. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. See, so, so why does it matter if we believe? That's what the Jews are effectively saying here. Why does it matter if we believe? Because God has to be faithful to us. We're Jews. We have His stamp of approval. And Paul says, no, God cannot be unfaithful to Himself. You see, they're they're saying in judging the Jews, God has become unfaithful because He made a promise to them. That's where God's unfaithfulness shows up. That's that's how they saw it. And Paul says, no, that's not the case. Here's his response in verse 4. Rather, let God be found true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul's response is that God will not sacrifice His faithfulness to the Mosaic Covenant just because a large number of Jews reject Him. So, it is true that some Jews did not believe, but that, at the same time, does not harm or mar God's faithfulness to the Jews and to God's covenant with the Jews. God will follow through on His promises to them. Now, in order to support this point and to clarify it, Paul appeals to this Old Testament quotation. And if you look in the margin of your Bible under verse 4, you see it comes from Psalm 51.4. What's going on in Psalm 51? Anyone know? That's where David repents of his sin with Bathsheba. He's confessing his sin. And he says, God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And then the very next phrase is what you see here in Romans chapter 3, verse 4. The very next phrase is this, that you may be justified. So David's saying to you, God, I've sinned against you and done evil in your sight so that you would be justified. How? In your words. And prevail when you are judged. David prays to God that that he would be de- that God would be declared righteous. This is interesting. He's not saying God vindicate me. Okay, be true to yourself with with bringing blessing to me. Instead, he says, God, I want you to be seen as righteous. And notice that he would be seen as righteous in what? Look, look at the last line of verse four. And prevail when you are bringing blessing. No, when you are bringing judgment on me. You see what Paul's doing here? He's responding to the foolish objection that the Jews might have. The Jews, see, they want God to be faithful to His promises. That's a positive way of of seeing God's truthfulness and His faithfulness. See, God is a God who blesses those who follow Him. Or God is faithful to His promises. But Paul is saying 
that, that that's fine. God is faithful to His promises in bringing blessing. But here, God is also faithful to His promises in bringing judgment on sin. You see, God would be unfaithful in not judging sin. So what Paul is saying is God is equally faithful in blessing, bringing salvation to the Jews, and in judging His own people. Right? Judgment begins with the house of God. We'll see you next time. Friends, it is easy to call God to the carpet when we're in trouble. God, You are slow to anger and abounding in love. So how can You send consequences my way because of my sin? You're supposed to be slow to anger and abounding in love. How can You send consequences? Do you know how God would respond to that question? Yes, I am slow to anger and abounding in love. But that does not exempt me from responding to sin as I have promised I would do. And I will be vindicated in both, in bringing mercy and in bringing judgment. Too often we're like the child who loathes the corrective discipline of his parents and pleads with them for only blessing, blessing, blessing. We foolishly think that faithfulness to us that our parents' faithfulness to us is not just when they bless us, but also when they bring about the consequences of our sin. And that's the same thing that's true for God. God is faithful, both in bringing blessing and in bringing judgment. The third objection that Paul wants to, to counter is found in verses 5 and 6. And that is that his teaching denies God's righteousness. So if God can be seen as righteous in His judgment of my unrighteousness, talking from a Jew's perspective, then doesn't that make God unrighteous? If God is seen as righteous in His treatment of the unrighteous, then it appears that man's sin leads to God's righteousness. And if my sin leads to God's righteousness, then that means that sin brings about good. And if sin brings about good, then how can God judge me? That's the whole line of argument summed up in verse 5. Look at it with me. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Right? My sin brings good. It shows God's righteousness. It highlights His mercy. Or to say it another way, God would be unrighteous to inflict wrath when our repentance is dependent on His grace. Look at the second part of verse 5. The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is He? How can He show wrath to me if He's the one who provides the, the grace for me to repent? Paul's initial response is seen there at the end of verse 5. I'm speaking in human terms. He wants to show how foolish this kind of reasoning is because it's indicting God as unrighteousness. It's putting God on trial as the defendant and saying, God, you're unrighteous in the way that you treat me. Paul's saying, I'm speaking in human terms. It's how silly this kind of argument is. But here's his fuller response in verse 6. He says, may it never be. God is not unrighteous to judge His covenant people. God is completely righteous to judge His own people. Why? For otherwise, how will God judge the world? And the reasoning that He uses here is, if God cannot judge His own people, the Jews, who have defied His clear instructions, then God has no right to judge the Gentiles because of their sin, who have lesser revelation than the Jews. See, the Jews have more revelation 
And, and if you say that God can't judge them, then God can't judge the Gentiles who have lesser revelation. Do you see? And yet, we know that God can judge the Gentiles. He must judge the Gentiles. That's what chapter 1 was about. They have all that they need. They are without excuse. Despite their lesser revelation, God can judge the Gentiles. And so how much more just is God to, just those, uh, to judge those who have more revelation? So here's, he, he kind of takes it back in the opposite direction. If God can judge those who have lesser revelation, the Gentiles, and He can, no Jew would deny that, then He certainly can judge the Jews who had more revelation. That's the point. See, God is not being unjust. He's being completely just in His judgment. He's com- being completely righteous. The fourth objection is found in verse 7, and that is that Paul's teaching denies God's just judgment. But if through my lie the truth of God abounds to His glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? So this is just a restatement of verse 5, which is, my sin appears to show God's righteousness. God somehow in the end, even in my sin, gets glory. Not because of the evil that's done, but because of how He responds to it, either in showing mercy or in bringing judgment. In both cases, God receives glory, doesn't He? I mean, that will be seen most clearly in the end times, or I guess you could say the end of time. When, when God receives glory from all those to whom He's shown mercy, right? all the, all the saints, and God also receives judgment in the, in the punishment of the wicked for all time. See, God receives glory in both. So, let's take it down to a smaller level. If God receives glory from both blessing and judgment, then why can't I just go on sinning? Because God's going to receive glory in it somehow, either in showing mercy to me or in judging me. It's the same sort of argument from verse 5. And you can hear here the cynical tone that Paul is taking to these potential objectors. Look at verse 7. But if through my lie the truth of God abounds to His glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? You kind of hear the cynical tone that, that, in which he writes. He's saying, you may say that your lying would cause God's glory to, bound, uh, to abound. And if that's the case, then you're wondering how it's fair for God to judge your sin. right? Because God can receive glory either way. He's going to respond to this at the end of verse 8. So, Let's hold off on the response here until we get to the fifth objection. The fifth objection is really a second part of the fourth objection. It's found in the beginning of verse 8. And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. It appears that our evil brings about good, so let's sin it up. Let's just live it up to the fullest, no matter what kind of sin that involves. Because, you know, God's going to get the glory in the judgment of the wicked or in the blessing of the righteous. And so let's let the diamond of God's grace shine in the backdrop of my sin. That's the argument. Very similar to verses 5 and verse 7. And here's his response to this fourth and fifth objection. It's found at the end of verse 8. Their condemnation is just. Making this claim against God's character show that God somehow is unjust or He's loving the evil that's going on. 
making this kind of claim about God's character actually shows the person for who they really are. They are a sinner deserving of God's wrath that does not care about the glory of God. Those who encourage the abundance of sin so that God can somehow be more glorified in my sin are the people who are deserving of that condemnation that's coming to them. They show themselves not to be concerned for the glory of God, but for the pursuit of their own pleasures. And so that's why Paul says, when a person makes that kind of claim, let's go on sinning so that grace may abound, so that God will receive more glory. It doesn't really matter how we live. That kind of person will receive their just condemnation. That's his point. I want you to make sure that you understand the flow of the text. I've tried to explain each of these questions in turn. In turn. So what I've done for you on the back of the handout is given a paraphrase, and I've just changed all the interrogatives, the questions, into declarative sentences. Okay, so make make this the questions into statements. And so, so look at the back of your outline and follow along as I read. This is the passage, basically my paraphrase, changed to to uh, statements rather than questions. Now you might be thinking that there's no advantage to being a Jew and that there's no benefit to the covenant that is marked by circumcision. But I tell you that the Jews, the Jew does have an advantage, and it is a great advantage in every respect. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. But you might object that the unbelief of some Jews must nullify the faithfulness of God. But that could never happen. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you, God, may be justified in your words and prevail when you, God, are judged. The reality is that our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. And I know what that looks like. It seems to make the God who inflicts wrath to be unrighteous. I'm speaking in human terms. But again, that could never happen either. If God cannot judge the Jews for their unfaithfulness, He in no way is fit to judge the Gentiles for their unfaithfulness, which clearly is not the case. Now again, you might think that through your lie that God receives greater glory and therefore you're exempt from condemnation since God is receiving glory from the judgment of your sin. And since you are exempt from God's condemnation, you think that I'm claiming, as some have slanderously reported, we should go on pursuing evil so that good may come. But when you make that claim, you show that you are deserving of God's just condemnation. God's character and glory are not marred in His judgment of religious people. God is completely just to act as He does, even towards those who have the greatest of privileges. And we are in that category, I think, of the Jews, that we have this great privilege. Whether you received the Gospel and and the Word of God when you're a young person or even later on in life, you have received and it has been granted to you to receive the very words of God. That, that is a great privilege. And so I see myself and I see our church as being entrusted with that, like the Jews. So we need to consider two, two applications this morning. Number one, God's grace does not empower you to sin. God's grace does not empower you to sin. We Baptists 
highlight the doctrine of eternal security. And we should. But the danger that we face when we think about this doctrine to the exclusion of other complementary doctrines is that we can easily forget that God's great concern is for His great glory and not for our blessing primarily. God primarily is concerned for His glory. God is magnified in the judgment of the wicked just as much as He is magnified in the blessing of the righteous. Douglas Moose says it this way, We want to stand on the promises of God as Christians, but we must not forget that God promises to judge unrepentant sinners just as well as He wants to bless those who respond rightly to His grace. God has a desire to judge the wicked just as much as He wants to bless those who depend upon His grace. And so, don't depend on any works that you have done to save you. Don't think that God's grace empowers you to sin. No works of yours will bring about God's satisfaction of you on your own. You need Jesus Christ. And so depend on Him. All of our efforts fall short when it comes to our justification. That's why we cannot boast in anything. Right? It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. It's not by works so that no one can boast, Ephesians 2 says. In the end, it's all Christ. So we look to Him for grace. And then as Christians, we, we don't presume upon God's grace and use it in such a way to empower us to sin as if, you know, it doesn't matter how we live, God will be glorified either way. No, we, we recognize God's glory and how much it disappoints God when we, His children especially, sin against Him. Second application. In salvation and in condemnation, God is not unjust. In salvation and in condemnation, God is not unjust. God is completely within His rights and His character to judge the ungodly. Even the religious ungodly. Even the, those who have been privileged with the very words of God and yet are ungodly. God is just to judge them. What I mean by religious people are those who are like the Jews here in this passage. I mean the people who in our day have this great privilege of growing up in a Christian home or in a Christian church, but have squandered those privileges by spending themselves on the lust of this world, and as a result, they are under the condemnation of God. Friend, God will judge all the religious wicked. We have a great privilege. Even here today, we have great privilege because we have been given the very words of God. They've been entrusted to us and what we do with them will reveal to God where we stand. Will our ears selectively hear this truth today? Or will we allow the Holy Spirit to penetrate our hearts with this truth and go away from this place not being conformed to, the, to this world and the mold in which it's trying to put us, but being complicit with the work of the Spirit and what He's trying to do to change us. You see, God has every right to shine.
shut us out from heaven, whether we are religious or irreligious. And therefore, we are no different from the Gentiles in that way, that we all have the same expectation from God, which is we must repent. So come to Him today. Acknowledge your sin. Accept the consequences that will come with that sin and believe in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Because God will not reject anyone who comes to Him by faith. Let's pray. Father, we do acknowledge that we are people of great privilege. Many of us have heard the Gospel from the time that we were small. I I myself could not remember a time in which I was not going to church and and, um, being trained under the Gospel in my home and at school. And I know there are others like that here. Some got saved later in life, but, but really have experienced the joy of knowing the Gospel and the truth from Your Word for years. And so we are people of privilege. And we don't want to squander that privilege by thinking wrongly about how to use it, by presuming upon Your grace, by sinning it up in life so that Your grace will abound or so that You will receive glory. Lord, we recognize the great distress that we bring to You, our Father, when we sin. And so we... We see our sin as detrimental to our relationship with You. And Lord, those of us in Christ, we know that that will not ultimately keep us from an eternal relationship with You, but certainly will mar that relationship. And and Lord, we want to be restored. So we come to You with our sin, acknowledge it before You, confess it, and ask for You to help us to forsake it. Or give us clear ways in which we can turn from our sins. We want to glorify You in all things. We don't want to have that foolish mindset that that we can just go on doing evil so that good will come. Because when we think that way, we show that our condemnation is is just. That that our primary focus is not on Your glory and on bringing praise to Your name, but it's primarily on our self-service, on our selfish lust that we want to pursue. Or we want this free ticket to heaven that, that allows us to just go on living our lives as we please. And yet, we see today that that is an unbiblical, an ungodly, a pagan way of thinking. And so, pull that away from us. Pull us away from that kind of thinking. Take it away from us as far as the east is from the west and help us to live for Your glory, always seeking to do Your desire And even uh, this day, we pray that you would help us in that way. In Jesus' name, amen.